Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. The common workplace issues of low pay, toxic environment, understaffing, corporate greed, wage theft, union busting, and high turnover also exist in institutions of higher education. Undergraduate students typically earn low wages at campus jobs. In this podcast, we explore the concept that students are workers do just wages and benefits and voice. Beginning in 2016, undergraduate students at Grinnell College in Iowa have worked to form the first union of undergraduate student workers, the Union of Grinnell Student Dining Workers, or the UGSDW. Union leaders, senior Keir Hitchens and sophomore Malcolm Galpern-Levin are with us to give the history of the movement along with details of their organizing strategies. The union's description is as, quote, the only independent undergraduate labor union in the country. UGSDW fights for fair pay and benefits for workers at UGSDW, end quote. Keir and Malcolm describe the context, the organizing process, the setbacks, the networks and coalitions, the victories, and the future expansion of the Union. Students at Grinnell are discovering what collective power can do. As they work for transparency and accountability from their supervisors and the administration, they also address issues of food insecurity on their campus. Keir and Malcolm provide insights on the value of undergraduate labor organizing to their own lives, to campus culture, and to the labor movement broadly. Welcome, Keir and Malcolm, to Nothing Never Happens. Would you please introduce yourselves to our audience? Uh, sure. Hi, I'm Keir. Uh, I'm the current president of the Union of Grinnell Student Dining Workers. I'm a rising senior, uh, just about to start my last semester at Grinnell, and um, I, I work I've worked a few different jobs in my time. I've worked at the, the student newspaper in a couple of different positions. I worked as a, a student security worker and a student driver for our health clinic. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm an English major and a future teacher. Okay, thanks. Uh, Malcolm. I'm Malcolm. I'm a student worker at Grinnell College. I'm also an executive board member for the Union of Grinnell Student Dining Workers. I'm a rising third year student and I have a double major in sociology and Spanish. And I've worked in the student newspaper as well with Kier. So tell us, um, tell us for, I know, I know people don't, may not be, listeners may not be super familiar. Um, first of all, congratulations on winning your election. Um, tell us about the history of organizing undergraduate workers um, at Grinnell. Sure. Yeah. So it's a it's a long history that started before either of us got to Grinnell. Um, so in in 2016, um, one dining hall worker named Corey McCartan uh, got together with a couple others, and um, they they started thinking long and hard about basically how how bad the working conditions were, um, low wages, kind of chronic understaffing, and and high turnover, um, and they they really wanted to to 
make a change and they had no no way of doing that the kind of the issues that they brought up to their supervisors just went unaddressed and, and were buried in in some circumstances so they decided to form a union um and uh just kind of just got started very quickly um and got it off the ground and then um and before the college was was able to uh, to kind of put together any robust uh, union busting efforts, they had filed for an election and won an election for the dining hall workers. Um, so at that point, the union was about, um, I think, around 300, uh, there were 300 workers in the bargaining unit. Um, and, uh, and then since then, um, basically since 2017, uh, the year after, they, uh, those workers spoke to student workers across the entire campus on Grinnell uh, or at Grinnell which which is about uh, 1700 undergrads um, and they realized that m most of the problems that they faced were not unique to the dining hall but um, extended to every workplace on campus and so and and also uh, student workers across every every workplace realized wait we we should have the same protections of a union um, in in our workplace so uh, they they started organizing around expanding the, the existing union to to cover all of those other workplaces. And by that time, the college had kind of realized um, that this was they were going to be kind of ceding a lot of power to to the student workers, and they they didn't want to do that. So um, they put together a pretty robust um, union busting effort. They uh, act. so eventually the the organizers collected union cards. Uh, forced an election to take place. We won that election um, by a five to one margin. And then the college, um, after uh, a hearing where the where Corey and Sam, who were the two two student workers, um, argued successfully against the college's lawyers before the, the regional director of the, NL, the NLRB, um, we won that that case, Corey and Sam won. Um, the college uh, hired new lawyers. They hired uh, some lawyers from a, a firm called Proskauer Rose. That's this huge white shoe um, law firm from New York City, um, also employed by the NBA, for example, in their their negotiations with the NBA Players Association. Wait, let um, me interject and say that was also the firm that Yale hired to bust the graduate union that we were grad dragged up in front of when I was in grad school. Yes. So Proskauer Rose, the real MVPs continue. Yes. They're, so they, they were, they hired a team of at, bet, between like four and six at any time, um, uh, senior partners at Proskauer Rose, and they were paying them upwards of $1,200 an hour each um, just to kind of quash these, these student workers efforts. So uh, they appealed to the National Labor Relations Board. They appealed that election. Um, and we had to withdraw our petition at that point because we were afraid that the, the Trump NLRB would overturn um, the precedent that says that student workers are workers, because that was the college's number one argument, was that student workers are not workers um, because we're students. Uh, even though we receive pay and and uh, do vital work for the college, we're not actually workers at all. So um, at that point, we just kind of buckled down and, and continued a lot of the organizing that we were doing in, in different, different workplaces on campus. Um, continued our organizing in the dining hall um, and that that was around the time that I got involved um, there was a failed deal where the the president had sat down um, with student workers and agreed to uh, to facilitate a partial expansion of the union to some some workers outside of the dining hall that fell through once the trustees uh, after 
eight months of deliberation blocked that from happening. Um, so then we we uh, entered into the pandemic, and um, it was a, a rough time. I mean, I think it's fair to say that like eighty plus percent of all student workers lost their jobs. Um, there was no uh, kind of no recourse, no um, yeah, no no other options for student workers besides just kind of uh, taking taking that on the chin and. Um, and then, so we continued our, our organizing throughout throughout the pandemic, organized around, um, yeah. Uh, so organized around um, some some demands, COVID related demands. Um, yeah, Malcolm, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was just gonna say that's when I entered into the the timeline in the middle of the pandemic. I was a first year in fall twenty twenty two was my first semester where it was all split up into quarters and everything but that's when I found out about the union and started getting involved just as kind of a member in the shadows I guess because it was you know there was not really any jobs on campus anyway so I wasn't technically employed at the time um, but the union you know like Keir said was having a hard time during the pandemic it's incredibly hard to reach workers the only workers that are working was like a very very small group of dining workers that were still on campus it's incredibly difficult to get into contact with them and for the most part it seemed like there weren't that many issues um, but anyways this is kind of when I uh, enter the fray. And then, yeah, like Keir said, <clears throat> heading into the spring, which is then when I went onto the executive board, is when we started to run into COVID-related issues. I was on campus for the first quarter of the spring, so two months from, you know, February to the end of March, something like that. Um, and that was, there was a lot more students back on campus. That was the first time they really invited students, mostly first years. And there was a number of first-year students, and not just first-year students. I think there were students of other years working in the mailroom that were facing a lot of issues with COVID conditions. There weren't enough safety protocols. Uh, the supervisors were wearing masks that didn't actually really cover their face. They were one of those whack, I don't know if you've ever seen them, the, the plastic that is just completely not doing anything at all. One of those, so the classic. And uh, so <clears throat> we had you know sort of an action trying to get uh, justice for that. And, and we had an email action where we spoke to the administration. The administration promised to meet a number of the demands that we had related to COVID, but they did not uh, meet the demand that we had for, for raising the wage, which is something that we also requested during that time. Um, and then fast forward a little bit to uh, this past fall is when we were all back on campus, the college invited the entire school population. So obviously there's a lot more action. The union is back together, like funny enough, had known here for, for that whole time, but had never met because you know we're all in these completely different places on different sides uh, of the country. So it's a very interesting way to, to get into it. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> very interesting way to get into it. And once we were back on campus in the fall, funny enough, one of our first campaigns, uh, again, was in the mailroom. But one of the things that we really prioritized when we got back in the fall of 2021 uh, was really just getting the word out about the union again. Tons of people had either forgotten about the union or had graduated, right? Because we had two whole classes that had, had started out without the union in place. So it was a lot of door knocking. It was a lot of tabling, speaking to as many members as possible, particularly first year students. It's something that we typically do uh, in the fall, which we're you know planning to do going into this next semester, which is just try and get the word out, let them know that the union is there, that you know obviously should join the union, have those protections and, and, and be part of that. Um, and yeah, one of the first campaigns we started working on was the mailroom. Uh, fortunately, the COVID conditions were fixed, but very unfortunately, um, the actual conditions were incredibly abusive. Still, uh, the supervisors uh, were just treating the workers without any respect or dignity whatsoever. There was a numerous transphobic, racist, sexist, ableist, you name it, 
uh, you've got you get the point. Uh, comments being made. So we had an action. We had a rally where we had student workers and students alike just come out and support. I think we had uh, more than two upwards of two hundred and fifty people uh, attend that rally, just trying to to get people to understand what was happening in the mailroom. The mailroom workers marched in and delivered their demands straight to the supervisors. Uh, evidently, they got put on leave and were eventually restored because the college administration doesn't necessarily like to be completely accountable. Um, but I think it was still very important to to our organizing, really let the the Grinnell student community know uh, that we were there and also helped us build up uh, from that point, which is when we moved on to our, our dining hall campaign for $15 an hour, um, because dining hall conditions, uh, particularly during the pandemic, were much more understaffed for students, which caused you know, all sorts of issues for, for students in the dining hall who were not being trained properly, were being thrown into different stations, were being told that it was okay to contaminate different stations uh, like vegan and gluten-free and halal and different things like that. Um, and that was a really, really big issue. So we had uh, a sit down with the college where we gave student workers in the dining hall the floor to express their demands to the administration and try and get them to understand what was going on with the ask that the college administration reopen contract negotiation, which is 100% in their capabilities uh, to rediscuss the dining hall wage because we thought, you know, is understaffing our problem to deal with? No, but our problem is that our student workers are facing these conditions that aren't fair for them to be working in. So we're going to address that problem. And one way we're going to address it is by raising the wage. Not only will it have student workers uh, have more money that they're able to, you know, spend for their livelihood, not be as worried about the wages, which are very, very low still for dining workers, uh, but simultaneously encourages other people to get a job in the dining hall, right? It's very hard to will yourself to get a job for $10.40 if you know the conditions are incredibly poor. Uh, and then we moved on to kind of our expansion neutrality, which I'm going to give it back to Kira, if that's okay, Kira, unless you want me to do it. Yeah, and I want to jump in here just just a minute to, to say that I would like you to want, at some point address where you learn these smart organizing tactics. Yeah, really, um, that's fantastic. And especially the part, I mean, you're, you're an independent union and like, did I hear you correctly that, that Grinnell students were arguing against college hired lawyers in front of, that's amazing. And we need to put a pin in that and come back to this. But continue to talk about the evolution. We will definitely yeah. circle back these yeah. things. This is, this, you guys are awesome. Okay. For sure, yeah. So uh, that was, so fall of 2021, um, after a, a couple of those campaigns that, um, we, we gained some momentum with those campaigns, didn't necessarily get our demands, um, but there was still a lot of engagement from, the, from the, the greater student body and student workers as a whole. Um, so it was at that point that we announced that we, um, that we announced internally that we were going to pursue expansion again. Um, so yeah, so we started collecting union cards um, to expand the union's representation to every student workplace on campus. Um, and and by the time uh, winter break rolled around, we had more than, so in order to trigger a union election, you have to collect at least 30% uh, uh, cards. So have uh, cards from 30% of the workers in the workplace saying, I'd like to join a union. Um, I authorize the union to be my collective bargaining representative. Um, and so by the time winter, winter break rolled around, we had probably about 45% of uh, all the student workers on campus had signed those cards. Um, and uh, we approached the college and said, hey, look, um, a year and a half of pandemic didn't kill our organizing. You waiting waiting for our organizers to graduate didn't kill our organizing. We're all new. We are not the ones that, that were arguing against your lawyers last time around. Um, we're here to stay. 
the, the National Labor Relations Board has changed. Um, the makeup has changed since uh, Joe Biden appointed two union side labor lawyers. Um, and uh, and also it was a, a new president of the college at this point who hadn't dealt with the union before. And so we we spoke to her and said, look, this is this is your opportunity to kind of uh, change change the course of what Grinnell has done thus far. Um, and and take a new tact. Um, so uh, and and also we said, look, we're we're going to win this uh, in, in a matter of time. It's just it's just a matter of how long and how much money the college is willing to spend to try to block it from happening. So um, we eventually sat down and negotiated a, a, a neutrality agreement with the college, where they agreed to remain neutral. Um, it was the first the first of its kind uh, neutrality agreement between um, undergraduates and and a, a university administration um, and uh, and that so over the period of a couple of months we we discussed uh, discussed that came to an agreement um, signed the agreement on March 4th while we we'd continued to collect union cards I think by the time we filed for an election we had um, more than 500 union cards out of uh, uh, kind of the out of the expanded unit of seven hundred odd workers, um, and then uh, we filed for for the election, and and um, and the I think the most important thing that that agreement uh, stated was basically the college um, signed away their right to appeal anything past the regional director, and the regional director is the same one who sided with with us in twenty eighteen, um, and so we had no doubt that uh that left up to the regional director we would get an election and we would win that election by a landslide so um so they they signed away away their their rights to appeal um which was was a huge win for us um and then we held that election this in in this past april and um and won by uh 320 327 to six um and uh, yeah, so now we're now we're moving moving on towards uh, negotiating our first contract. That's our big our our big task for this fall, um, which is uh, it's a heavy lift because we've got to got to get input from every every student worker on campus to and and negotiate a contract that covers every every student workplace on campus. Um, so yeah, that's that's the 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 brief history um, and and yeah, kind of kind of where where we came from to to where we are. Uh, right now. Yeah, through this whole process, who were your support networks? Um, and at other colleges and universities? And could you talk a little bit about that growing movement too? For sure. Yeah. So um, I think that's, that's one thing that is so awesome about the moment that we're in right now compared to 2016. Um, because in 2016, uh, Grinnell was basically on our own, um, and a lot of our organizers were on on their own in terms of the the work that they were doing. Um, so, you asked about the uh, earlier about like where we learned all of these these organizing uh, strategies. Um, I think we learned a lot of the basics from our early organizers, uh, and that was one of the reasons that we were so successful early on. We had this infrastructure that was built up by uh, people like Corey, uh, people like Sam, who are, Corey is, he's now um, on the bargaining team for the Harvard Graduate Student Workers Union, um, and uh, Sam is uh, at uh, Stanford Law School getting his degree in law, so there are a couple of slackers, um, and, uh, but we were, we've been in, in communication with them um, for a, a very long time, and they, they definitely we're always a resource to us. Um, 
I think we also um, we had we had help is in uh, negotiating the, the neutrality agreement in particular um, from a couple of lawyers and um, and a couple of professors who who uh, answered our questions and kind of walked us through um, the, the, the crash course in labor law. Um, but we did the, the negotiating and the, and the writing of the, that um, that agreement ourselves. So um, that was a, a lot of learning in a very short period of time. Um, I think in so in terms of the the where where we're at is kind of like a, a broader movement across uh, many different campuses. Now we are in contact with um, student workers at at Kenyon College, at uh, Wesleyan University, Dartmouth, um, Hamilton, and um, and a bunch of others. Those are just the ones that have have either have won or have established some uh, significant organizing. Kenyon went on strike uh, for two and a half weeks. Um, in multiple different workplaces, and the Wesley and Dartmouth um, and Hamilton um, all won their unions recently. So, um, and those are in the in the uh, dining hall and res life, depending on on the college. Um, but yeah, so I think we're we're trying to build up um, this this stronger movement, and I think um, their their success in the past few months has really shown that we're in a new period now uh, where there is support. Um, and we we constantly get uh, uh, emails and and texts and stuff from and Instagram DMs from um, student workers on all kinds of uh, different different campuses saying how do we do what, what you did, um, and we uh, it's really great to to like be able to point them in the direction of a, a growing group um, and say like look these are these are the the events that you can come to these are the resources you can look at, um, but yeah it's it's. Uh, we definitely, I think when things started, it was kind of a lot, lot of uh, like prodding around in the dark uh, trying to figure out uh, what worked and what didn't. Um, and, and now hopefully we can, we can share a lot of what has worked for us with others so they don't have to do, the, do so much of the trial and error. But obviously it's, it's different for every campus as well. I'm curious, um, you've spoken to this a little bit, but I'd love to hear you kind of discuss it um, as directly as possible. How, what are some of the strategies that y'all have developed for um, organizing amid the transient, like this sort of constant state of like transients and, you know, students are there, like you obviously came in after this started. I think I see among undergraduates who I teach and certainly have felt this and as both a graduate student and undergrad, that it like, it, it can be, it can feel like maybe you're building something that you're never going to get to see come to fruition or like, how do you, how do you respond to the turnover? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very difficult thing. Um, I think in part, maybe we're a little bit lucky because of, of Grinnell's size and just how easy it is to, you know, it's kind of, you, you know a lot of people just because of the, in, in terms of a percentage. So it can be typically, it can be harder in, in undergraduate schools and we don't necessarily have that context, but I think it's hard because, you know, once you, one, you have the administration constantly fighting students and also it is very hard with students uh, you know, we're not full-time workers. Uh, we're not working 40 hours a week. We're not like working and then going home and then that's the day. You know, we're doing school and work is typically something that you do more on the side. Now, I can't speak to this. There are absolutely student workers who put in 20, 30 hours of work and they do extra jobs on the side. 
Um, but for the majority of our students, I would assume for the majority of students across undergraduate campuses, uh, the primary time is spent on, on school and then your job is something else. Uh, so there's not, it, it's kind of harder in that way. People aren't necessarily always thinking about their job. Also, you know, the education system largely fails in educating people about what unions are in the very first place. Uh, I think what we've learned is, is the most effective method and you know, while it may be harder at other undergraduate schools that are larger, I think is absolutely the most effective work method is just talking directly uh, to workers face to face. And it works every single time. Uh, and that has to take a lot of dedication and a lot of like accepting no's uh, and, and rejection along the way. But the way that we found was doing strategies like door knocking, knocking on people's dorms, introducing ourselves, especially with that turnover. You have a whole, you know, I mentioned this earlier, you have a whole year of students that completely leaves and a whole year of students that comes in and for the most part doesn't know you exist. So you have to make your presence known. You have to knock on the door, introduce yourself, explain uh, in a lot of cases, you know, actually what the union is, is for, what's your purpose uh, and how they can be a part of that. And you're not going to get every single person to be involved in organ but that's the only way you're going to find anyone in the first place. So door knocking, tabling, I'd say for probably the majority, the majority percentage, definitely the better half of the percentage of the weeks in the year, uh, we were tabling in front of the dining hall. Uh, every single student that comes by, hey, do you have a job on campus? Do you have a job on campus? Do you not have a job on campus? Are you a union member? You got to just be asking people questions, again, making your presence known. Uh, in that way. And then having one-on-one -on -one meetings is, is has been our most effective way of understanding how workplace issues are in the first place. Reaching out to workers individually uh, saying, you know, hey, uh, I, I'm a worker in your workplace as well. Or, hey, I heard you're having an issue in your workplace. Or oftentimes students will reach out to us and having that face-to-face -face meeting. Uh, and that's how we were able to establish all these campaigns, the mailroom campaign, the dining hall campaign, every single campaign, uh, and even the, the smaller ones, issues that have come up, uh, grievances that student workers have raised that we've uh, worked on as well. When they weren't paying uh, high school workers the proper wage, they were doing wage theft against high school workers and denying them wages uh, because they weren't applying the pay raise that applied to them to that was established in the contract. We found out about that because we had a face-to-face -face conversation with a student worker who brought it to our attention and got back pay for all of those workers. So that is just the most effective way to work every time. Texting and emailing, sure, but it's not going to go anywhere near uh, as far. And you kind of just figure that out with time. And then also just uh, consistency with meeting. You have to be very, very vigilant. Uh, you have to be doing something. I think it's very easy to become idle and, and you know, feel like there's not something to do. The honest truth is that someone somewhere in some workplace on campus, particularly student workers, because they're often seen, you know, not even genuinely as workers, but more students and sometimes seen as people just like hitching a ride on a job are going to have workplace issues and they're going to have things that they need to be addressed. Uh, and you know, if you're really dedicated to the work, you got to be willing to, to find that out too and, and do the work to find it out. Yeah, I think one thing that we also kind of take for granted is just rank and file organizing. The fact that we are a, a union made up of student workers um, entirely. Uh, I think that like for one, it made it really hard for the college to use the kind of classic third party argument, which even they tried, they, they, still, they still said, um, in 2018, they said uh, in many, many uh, an all-campus memo that the union would inject some third interest between between students and the college. But really, it's just a, a like a powerful second interest, the power powerful interest of the students. Um, but I think in terms of actually organizing workplaces, that's that's the thing that helped that that kind of propelled us to success was we got together with workers from 
from workplaces and then had those workers organize their coworkers and organize their friends. Um, and uh, and that was always where, like Malcolm said, that's that's the only way to find out what's actually going on in a workplace is for, for the workers to be doing the organizing themselves. Um, and that, that didn't mean that that like uh, that we weren't like coming into workplaces that we didn't know, uh, but we would come in to ask, okay, what are the issues? And can you talk to three of your coworkers about them? Um, can you bring three people to this meeting? And can you ask them to bring three people? And of course, it never worked out where they would bring three people and then you'd get the whole workplace there, but we'd get five people in a meeting. And then those five people would talk to their friends, even if it was just a little bit. Um, and so we gain gain traction that way. But I think I think the, the kind of rank and file organizing, the, the fact that we are the, the workers doing the organizing ourselves um, was was really, really powerful um, because for many people, it, it it wasn't like some someone else telling them, here's what you need. It was just their coworkers saying, hey, uh, what's going on is really messed up and we, we should do something about it. And then actually actually uh, being able to point to uh, a solution and say, look, if we do this, this, and this, and if we get enough people on board, we, we can have uh, enough power to force the college to uh, to sit down with us and have to make a deal. So that's, yeah, I think that that has been the most powerful in, in many of the ways that uh, Malcolm pointed out where like tabling one-on-ones, door knocking, all of that stuff. Uh, would you give a specific example of where there was uh, some toxic workplace issues and how the union intervened on that? Yeah, so um, let's see. There's so many to pick from. Um, I think. <laughs> uh, you can get us more than one. Yeah. So the the mailroom is a is a an easy one just because uh, it was one of our main campaigns for so long. Um, where supervisors were repeatedly uh, transphobic, refused to use the correct pronouns for for students student workers that they supervised, uh, made racist comments about workers that they supervised, and about uh, students who were just coming to the mailroom. Um, and those were things that were repeatedly brought up by student workers over a period of years. Um, they uh, students attempted to initiate like the Title IX process to go through uh, a, a discrimination and harassment process, um, and and the college never um, never started that process. They never listened to those. Um, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say at least five or six people who came to the college uh, with with those issues over the years. Um, the only time that that the college actually initiated that process was after um, we got the workers together um, in meetings to plan plan an action. Wrote down a list of demands, had a rally with 250 people, like uh, like Malcolm said, and uh, and then it was at that point that the college said, "Oh, maybe we should initi initiate this this um, discrimination process." Obviously, that's not the the end of the story, right? So the, those those supervisors were were actually reinstated at their jobs this semester um, without even telling the, the person um, who uh, filed the discrimination um, report, who's a member of the union, a member of our executive board, um, and uh, and so. I think fundamentally nothing has changed there except for the fact that we've now won a union and are about to start bargaining a contract that will cover all of the workplace policies, um, including things like wages um, and and workplace discrimination, workplace harassment. Um, so we'll get to bargain for that in uh, in our upcoming contract, and then um, we'll have uh, the the kind of the legal recognition to, uh, of that contract to to enforce. Um, 
I think at, at the end of the day, though, it, of course, it's always just how much how much power we have as workers and our ability to uh, to put pressure on the college through direct action in our in our workplace that that is the thing that will will be able to hold them accountable. Um, so yeah, that's that's one example. I think the another one Malcolm mentioned getting back pay for for workers who had their wages stolen um, in the dining hall. The college was not paying the contract wage to uh, high schoolers who are covered by the contract and work in the dining hall. Um, they were paying them less than the contract wage, and they also failed. We have a uh, we had won an experienced student pay, um, kind of uh, basically a, like a a raise, a metric for a raise. So if you work enough hours in a previous semester, you can apply to get a, a one dollar an hour raise for any any consecutive or any uh, following semesters. Um, and the college had failed to put out the application for that or provide any information about how how to apply for that. So student workers were not paid um, who who would have qualified were not paid that that experience pay. Um, and so we won we won back pay, back pay for them as well um, for all all the hours that they worked in the semester until the college put out that that application. So um, I think and there are plenty more examples of of things like like wage theft where the, the college has failed to pay uh, student publications workers um, sometimes thousands of dollars individually. Um, uh, and and if, to total it up, it's it's definitely more than ten thousand um, dollars that that the college failed to pay over a period of months, um, sometimes more than a year, um, where where student workers just weren't getting paid for their work, um, and it wasn't ever clear why. Um, and uh, and so that's something that there, I think individuals have gotten some resolution after the student newspaper published an article about it and and stuff like that. Um, but uh, that's definitely something that we're looking forward to um, to bargaining over in, in our, our coming negotiations to have a kind of a grievance procedure and enforceable contract that that we can use um, to make sure that that kind of stuff just uh, not that it doesn't happen because of course it's it still will happen um, but so that student workers will have recourse and have a structure um, to to turn to um, and a structure of solidarity where uh, instead of having to kind of build up those build that up from scratch and and do like organize all their coworkers to take some action they can just turn to the union hey uh turn to their union rep turn, turn to their their steward in their workplace and say hey this thing happened to me can you see if it's happening to other people and then we can organize organize around around it from there that's all great. I, I mean, I think we have a million questions to ask. I guess I'll just throw out the next one, which is, are there other um, bargaining units um, of like workers who are not necessarily students um, at Grinnell? And how do, do does your unit relate to those units? Are there tensions? Are there points of solidarity? How do you navigate that? So there's one other, the, um, the Teamsters represents the uh, facilities management workers on campus. Um, they are pretty, uh, pretty, like pretty much hands off. I've never um, met or been in contact with any of them. We've reached out a couple of times just for like statements of solidarity or statements of support over the years, and they've kind of uh, blown us off. So um, they're, they're not active on campus at all to the point where in our negotiations with the college over our, our agreement, the the chair of the board of trustees said um, that they would love to have a relationship with us like they do with the Teamsters, um, which I took to mean one that, that doesn't actually win very much for the workers because things haven't changed for those facilities management workers for a very long time. Um, so yeah, it, it, we basically, we function like there are no other, uh, no other unionized workers on campus just because um, we've, we've 
not been able to to get any any contact with them. It's also Iowa's a right to work state, so um, like Republican controlled state legislature, there are lots and lots of restrictions on um, how on how unions can organize, um, and uh, and that makes things that makes things difficult. Um, and and I think that it makes larger unions. Um, think twice before dedicating resources to organizing in those states, which is one of the most damaging aspects of those laws. Um, so yeah, we've, we're definitely, um, we, but we, we, at the same time, we've heard from workers from like full-time dining workers, for example, um, who are not in uh, the dining, the student dining worker union, um, who have said, hey, we, we, we need a union too, you know, these things. And, and we know for a fact that one of the, the biggest reasons that, for example, they don't raise the wages for student workers is, is that then they'd also have to raise the wages for full-time workers. Um, some of whom have said um, to student workers who make the like overtime pay and, um, and experienced student pay, um, who they've, which totals to like $2 an hour more than our base wage, which at the moment is $10 and 40 cents an hour. They've said, hey, uh, you, you make more than me now, which means that there are some full-time adult workers that are making less than $13 an hour working in, in the Grinnell's dining hall. So um, yeah, I think we're, we're definitely, definitely interested in, in supporting, supporting other workers in, in unionizing. Um, and uh, and that's just not yeah not really something that is uh, happening right now on Grinnell's campus. Well, this makes my next question even more complicated, I guess, because you've mentioned fifteen dollars an hour as a goal. I think could you clarify um, how you plan to get there, and if and what that means in terms of these full time staff that aren't making a living wage um, and aren't making fifteen an hour. Yeah, for the $15 question, yeah, I think heading into contract negotiations, just want to make it clear, $15 was part of our campaign back like during the dining hall. I think right now, at least the way that I think about contract uh, negotiations and specifically bargaining over wages, is that our primary objective is to represent and, and, and support our student workers and support student workers across campus. And that means fighting for the highest wage possible that we can possibly get. Now, if they wanna pay us $200 an hour, we're gonna accept, right? And we will go as high as 15. If you asked me, I would say 15 is the lowest we would possibly go. And that's because we've heard from student workers and student workers in, the, in, in swarms have communicated to us that they are not being paid enough and that they've had to take on multiple jobs or work the maximum of 20 hours a week uh, in order to be you know, covering work study and also paying for expenses and certain things like that. So $9.29 for, for workplaces across campus is just not gonna cut it anymore. It's been cutting it for, for far too long. So our objective is to fight for the highest wage that we can possibly get. Uh, and if the college, you know, the college has to be accountable and responsible for its own actions. If it's going to set the wage for full-time staff at $13 an hour, first of all, they should be raising that wage. Uh, and if they're not, you know, frankly, it doesn't, you know, kind of impact our strategy is what I would say. We believe that they should be getting a higher wage. And we believe that as student workers, we should be getting a higher wage. We want all workers to get a higher wage. Hopefully that means if student workers did get a higher wage, they would raise the wages of full-time staff as well. And like here said, you know, we're interested in, in, in working with the full-time staff as well and unionizing efforts, if that is a possibility um, um, going forward. And yeah. then- one, one thing to add to that is we know that they absolutely can afford it, um, not just because we know how much money they have, but also because they've told us. Um, Grinnell is one of 
the wealthiest schools per student in the country. The, the endowment, um, the endowment over the past uh, year in, in the, the fiscal year of 20, 2021, the endowment went up. It increased by $930 million. Um, the endowment's over $3 billion for a, 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 a school that has only 1,700 undergrads. Um, it's astronomical. There's, there's no reason, in my, in my personal opinion, there's no reason that any school should have that much money. Um, but there's also no reason that a school that has that much money should be paying um, any workers uh, less than, than $20 an hour, let alone, I, in my student security job, I, I make $8.24 an hour right now. Um, and that job is one where like I'm, I'm dealing with um, uh, in, in many situations, I'm, I'm the kind of last line of defense between a student um, who's, who's had too much to drink and is wandering out into the cold when it's seven degrees outside in, in Iowa. Um, and I'm, I'm the, last, the last person there to make sure that they actually get home safe. And I'm making $8.24 an hour. So those, those things just, just don't add up. I think the, the, I, I also said that the college has told us they can afford it. Um, in our contract negotiations for the dining hall um, last year, the college's lawyer said th that Grinnell could afford to pay student workers $25 an hour or even $100 an hour, but that it just, quote, wasn't financially prudent and that wasn't what, that wasn't what they valued student labor at. Um, so we, we know they can afford it. Um, we know that the the college's endowment has has just absolutely skyrocketed um in the in the past few years and um and so like they've uh, they've also they've threatened um different departments they've said hey uh if student student worker wages increase then um like your department uh the money allocated to your department isn't going to increase, so you're going to have to cut funding from other areas, and they've tried to blame that on the union. Uh, of course, those are all decisions that the college makes, right? So the, the blame at the end of the day lies with them if they decide to cut, cut funding from one area to pay student workers uh, more. That's just, that's just not how uh, it's, it's, it's not the, the, the burden there isn't, isn't uh, on the union. So of course, like Malcolm said, we'd support them paying everyone more, and we know that they absolutely have the money to do it. Okay. Yeah. One more thing here. Williams College has just announced that they're not going to uh, require students who receive financial aid to work in their work study program. That it they can if they need extra money, but it is not no longer a requirement. So it's not uh, financial aid is not tied to work study anymore. It's it's a big thing, uh, big announcement. Yeah, that's a huge deal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're rich. Yeah. As Yale, Yale would, they wouldn't call it work study. They would call it the student effort. And it was like, you need to invest in your own education. So you know what education is worth. And um, Students Unite Now, which was allied with the local, the other Unite Here unions in town um, and a community, a sort of like community grassroots, like sort of organized neighborhood association that was also working with Unite Here got them to eliminate that requirement. But I, I think it still probably isn't going far enough. And it's like, we were just talking off air about how it creates this tiered system where a lot of international students, a lot of low-income students, many of whom probably happen to be students of color that are coming into Grinnell are siphoned into these roles of doing service work for wealthy students who can afford to pay. And then what are the trade-offs that people not being able to like join a sports team because they have to work 10 hours a week in the dining hall for crappy wages with an abusive supervisor. And yeah. 
yeah grinnell also uses like the 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 pay tiers are are strange where um a lot of the time the the jobs that have um a higher like career value so like being a research assistant or um like working with one of your professors get paid less um, especially less than the dining hall um by one or two dollars an hour so the students that have to work um in order to to work fewer hours they take the job that is is harder um and also doesn't give them as much um as much kind of value in the long term so they're they the low-income students end up working in, in the dining hall when um higher income students or students that are choosing to work um work somewhere like like the student newspaper or with the professor doing research um and they and a lot of those students don't even view their jobs as jobs um and and that's where a lot of our kind of battle has come from in terms of like like making sure that student workers know that they are workers um is is talking to those those student workers but yeah it's a it's definitely there there are many many issues with that system um and we're trying to rethink all of that as we go into our our contract negotiations kind of uh thinking about what would it mean to to change the pay structure so that it's solely based on experience mm. um you can um student workers can pursue the jobs that they want of course the college uh always comes back to that and say well no one will work in the dining hall then no we, shit yeah we kind of put that back into their court where with by by saying well that's that's not really our problem you know you, you should figure out how to run your dining hall without relying on on low-wage labor from from low-income yeah. students and, and yeah international students yeah but uh they say uh the college says uh, right on the website uh Grinnellians ask hard questions and question easy answers right and then there's there was something in in the um some of the news items that said uh interviewed a guy who um said i'm coming to grinnell because they have a strong student union and so it seems that you're actually benefiting the college in terms of enrollment and retention and um community and and so many other things yeah i, I think um in many ways like grinnell's marketing is one of of social justice um the way they run the school is really like like any other business um whether or not it's got the nonprofit label or the the quote quote unquote social justice label on top of it um i think there it it was a surprise to me coming in i know uh, like i my my politics and my my kind of the way i see the world has changed a lot since when i first got to grinnell i didn't know what a union was when i got to grinnell i also um believed everything they said about the way that they ran the ran the school um and was shocked to find out that uh that they said one thing and did it did another um but i think i think that is also uh that's kind of the niche that grinnell has carved out for itself in in the world of higher ed um when when really this is like the way these the way schools like grinnell are run is is uh pretty similar across across the board so um i don't think grinnell's necessarily special in that they're doing all of these um all of these things uh i think that they're they're certainly motivated by um by rankings and by uh the enrollment numbers and all of that um and by keeping the keeping the endowment high um so yeah i think all those things together um we're we're just trying to kind of we're fight we're trying to fight the man but also trying to win some things for student workers along the way and and build up a sense of of for student workers 
um, and students at Grinnell um, who wouldn't necessarily have this experience otherwise kind of show them like, look, this is what collective power can do. This is what we did on our own in just a few short years. Um, so kind of imagine what you can do with with something like this when you get out into the quote, the quote unquote real world. Um, even though this very much is the real world for for a lot of student workers as well, you know, um, that was one thing that the, the the chair of the board of trustees uh, didn't believe us when we told him that there were students at Grinnell who were food insecure, um, and then we we let him know that there's a there's a, an entire free food pantry for uh, student worker or for students, many of whom are student workers who are working these jobs for for basically starvation wages. So, um, so yeah, I think all of those things together were we're trying to kind of change the way that that student workers see um, see themselves and, and students see themselves in relation to the college um, and uh, but also just uh, change the way that people see see these these systems of higher education as Grinnell Grinnell like many of these other like every other school uh, in in the same sphere is a business whether or not they say that they they uh, pride pride themselves on social justice um, yeah they, they run it like a business. I'm out here like looking up the board of trustees right now, which is something, you know, it's good to, it's good to know your trustees, know your trustees, everybody. Is it still the marriage and family therapist? Is that who you're talking about? No. I don't Maybe think so. Oh, wait, no, no, no. She's not the, she's not the chair. Never mind. Never mind. Wrong person. There's a marriage. Michael Kahn, 74. Yes. Um, yes. All right. Winning. Um, okay. So I just want to like. I just, I do want to add that he he loves to tell us about like what it means to him to be a Grinnellian, the fact that he um, he met his wife at Grinnell um, and he he said, I know where you're coming from because I protested the Vietnam War in the 60s. Um, but then I always in my head remind myself that he went on to work for Bank of America and Raytheon. So uh, <laughs> no, no, respectfully, we're, we're not the same. Listen, I mean. This is like a trope. And I feel that like I'm going to spend my entire scholarly career trying to like get my head around this. Like, how does what like a the um, this is just, you know, a Lucia rant in the middle of the podcast. These like ex radicals who not only like sell out to that extent, but then also like mobilize their prior like radicalism. I'm making scare quotes right now for all the um, listeners out there um, in order to legitimate their scabbing later. Um, so, like, I mean, very interesting uh, species of political actor or maybe totally boring, actually, it may be more interesting to see people being consistent with their stated values. Um, I, have a, I have a point of information question and then I have a, another question. Um, can you tell us what percent uh, or like what portion, proportion of um, Grinnell students um, have on-campus jobs? I just feel like we have like, that might be like helpful context for some listeners. A little less than half. Okay. Yeah, I'd say a majority of student workers work at some point, and at any given time, there are between seven and eight hundred, uh, if not more, um, student workers. It's interesting that, like, at, I definitely at Yale, definitely at Agnes Scott, when I was there, it was exactly the opposite in terms of the wage system. The um, the jobs that um, were like lower status um, or sort of like di the dining hall jobs, the like cleaning jobs, like all made less. 
And like the writing center tutors were the highest paid people on campus. And it was like a sort of using, it's like, I had not, I had not thought it would go the other way around. It's like the, there the college was trying to like mirror the structure of like upward career mobility or something or like reinforce a hierarchy between like manual labor and like brain labor or something as if like those are not overlaid. Um, but uh that's 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 really fascinating to underline about about Grinnell. Yeah, I, I think it certainly. I mean, it it calls into question whether the kind of like classic economic theory that you can just change what jobs people pick by changing the wages. Of course, like flipping it at Grinnell would not mean that that the low income students would suddenly be taking all these jobs with, with like high career value because the way that student workers get those jobs is by having relationship relationships with their professors or knowing or having worked for their their student newspaper in high school um, when a, a low-income student who maybe was working a job to help their family out um, in high school didn't didn't have the time to do that so if, of course the the like social stratifications that you see um, those those social stratifications that exist in broader society will re reflect in the in the, the structure at at school and so i think it's it's really if grinnell wants to kind of change like actually follow through on the, the the social justice language that it uses it would be trying to figure out ways to to make that all more equitable so um i don't i certainly don't trust that they'll do that but i think that we're we're taking steps in the right direction just by giving those student workers a voice and and um and trying to establish some um, some elements of, of kind of workplace democracy um, and yeah and and letting students have a say and I mean that's that's what the union is at, at its very foundation is just a group of student workers that now have um, have built enough power to the point where the college can't ignore us and we we have to have a say in how our how our work works um, so yeah I think that's the that's the goal we're 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 working towards it still but we've made some made some big steps in that direction. Awesome. Okay, great. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, I know like in different schools that are sort of that are so tuition dependent in their budget that um, like there are, very, there are much fewer student workers. So I work at a school where like 60% of students are just like, their parents or, or families are writing the check and they don't have to work on campus, but some of them do. And so just like different sort of class distinctions as they show up with respect to whether the college budget is able, is like pulling from um, student tuition dollars and thus there are fewer working class students, which creates the class hierarchies or re doesn't create them, reinforces them and re-entrenches them on campus. Um, I am curious about just sort of how your um, sort of emergence as organizers and your political education through um, union organizing on campus has changed your sense of yourself um, or your approach to your education. You said something a minute ago about kind of myth busting on the um, idea that college is not the real world, um, which, you know, you know, co-sign that. Um, I, how, how, like, how have you changed? Um, what, what has changed in your, in your life since, um, since kind of jumping on board this this project. Malcolm, you want to go first? No? Okay, I can go. Um, so a lot has changed for me. I think um, maybe even like more than than some of our members of leadership who like, for example, are are my um, co-president, like we're splitting a term. So Isaiah will be president next. Um, Isaiah, he he came to Grinnell 
in large part because of the union and uh, knew that he wanted to get involved, kind of uh, knew why he wanted to get involved from the beginning. Um, I think I was, I was very different in that I got to Grinnell and just ignored the union for a full year um, because I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't know um, what unions were, or what they did. I, I had not read anything. I just knew that there were people who were, were getting in trouble with the college for being loud and uh, making, making a ruckus. So I, uh, I, I really just got involved because I was a student worker. Um, so once I got a job on campus, I, I started to realize, wait, things are, things are not how they should be. Um, and um, I think, let's see how, how that changed things for me. I, I, I think I very much saw myself coming into Grinnell. Um, like I, I hold a lot of the same values that I did, but, um, but I saw myself very much on a track um, kind of on this like one dimensional track of, of education. Um, my high school, I wanted to be an engineer in high school. I, I switched from that very quickly. Um, but I, I saw myself as, as going through high school to get into a, like I had to do well in, in high school so I could get into a good college, do well in college so I could get a good job and uh, do well at my job so that I could have a family and support my family and do what I wanted. Um, and I've kind of, that's, that's changed for me where, and I joke, uh, I joke a, 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 about this a lot with um, Isaiah and with, with, with Malcolm and, and other members of the union and also student workers at these other other schools that kind of this resurgence in the labor movement is uh being led in large part by like by like down downwardly mobile um college students who like myself come into college from like a middle class background and are deciding to kind of forego those middle class interests and take jobs um where they won't be working as much or, or won't be earning as much um, and try to organize them, for example, at like unions like Starbucks, um, the Starbucks Workers United, I think they've had a, a lot of success and a lot of their organizers um, are, uh, are students um, who have come out of, uh, had, out of college or, or out of law school, out of grad school to, to organize um, their, their coworkers at, as, like, at their job that was just a way to make it through school before. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's changed things for me. For me personally, I I saw myself um, going into well before Grinnell, going into so, something like engineering, um, and then uh, and then I've kind of shifted to to teaching and and wanted to do teaching um, or or organizing somehow. I still I have no idea what I will end up doing, but um, but yeah, I think it's it's changed the way that I um, that I see myself in relation to. These structures, rather than just kind of going through them, um, with the base assumption that they that that the the kind of track that people are set on is is good, um, to fighting fighting back against a lot of the ways that um, that capital capitalism functions and that um, that these these broader institutions, um, including like the United States government, function. Um, yeah, so I see myself much more in a kind of combative role with those institutions than I did than I did before. Um, Malcolm, how about you? Here, you've changed so much. <laughs> um, I think Kira has changed more than me. Like he said, um, I think I was very lucky to have both of my parents be very involved in the labor movement uh, way before 
I was alive. So kind of growing up, I had a lot of ideas surrounding me. My mother was and continues to be a field technician for Verizon. So, you know, growing up middle class, great union job um, allowed me to kind of have a lot of the privileges that I did uh, and also allowed me to see a lot about the power of unions because I was on, you know, the picket line whenever she went on strike, uh, which for me was like a very fun always felt like I was getting dragged to it, but then was out there blowing a whistle and realized you were encouraged to yell at people. And I was like, okay, this is like the coolest thing anyone's ever thought of. Um, so very lucky to kind of be uh, surrounded about that, surrounded by that. And, and my father also works to, to organize rank and file workers. So I think coming into Grinnell, uh, working with, with UGSCW, being a part of UGSCW and also working myself has kind of just reinforced uh, those ideas and the need for there to be just a serious reallocation uh, of power into the hands of the workers. Uh, so it's been really amazing. And I feel like I've learned a lot uh, to get to do that directly and, and kind of see on the job uh, how people can can feel empowered when they realize that, you know, uh, they actually have more power and they're, they're not always in this kind of submissive role that, that institutions like here were saying want you to be in. Uh, so I think that that's been really amazing and has reinforced kind of my desire to, to continue to do that work and, and see where it takes me to. Uh, Lucia, you want to ask the last question? And then, then we'll ask our standard last question, which is about what are you listening to, reading, what would you recommend, and it could be have to do with our conversation or not. So we'll get to that in a second. But first, I guess I want to ask like um, short like what are your what are your short term goals for the next contract? And you may not have a direct answer to that right now, um, because I know you're talking to members and trying to kind of like get sort of different issue areas to congeal. But sort of short term vision, and then maybe long term vision for organizing at Grinnell or for student labor movements um, broadly. Um, could you could you talk about both of those the scales? Yeah, I would say short term vision, you know, like I said, fighting one for the highest wage possible uh, for all student workers, making sure that there's a much better uh, benefit system in place for workers, not only for them to sort of uh, get bonuses on the job, but potentially also some sort of healthcare system, which are ideas that we, we have in the works. Uh, I would say also one of the most important things for us is having uh, just kind of generally in less contract language, uh, a very set grievance system where student workers know that they can come uh, to the union and they can also, you know, themselves be stewards in their own workplaces and have these set systems where if there's an issue in a workplace, a student knows that number one, it's not okay. Uh, and number two, number two, it shouldn't be tolerated. And number three, there's actually something to do about it. So having those systems in place, and that's really what I think is, is the power in a union is having that power to say, listen, this is not okay uh, and, and needs to stop. So that's what student workers are going to get. That's what we're going to fight for in the contract. Uh, whether that's with benefits language, whether that's with hiring language or discrimination practices, um, you know, really anything, um, <clears throat> making sure uh, that student workers have those uh, methods of, of standing up for themselves and, and fighting back against injustice in the workplace. And I think that also really plays into uh, our long-term goals of just really growing our union, strengthening our union every single year, making sure people are known about us. But more than that, almost to the point, you know, I like to imagine I don't, I don't really see uh, sort of a, a roof for us as a union. I want it to be something where people come in uh, and already know the union exists. And really, there's already this strong built-in grievance system where we have stewards and leaders in their workplaces that student workers trust in, student workers are confident in them and know that they're you know, a trusted confidant, someone that they can go to, uh, and that it's not going to just be an empty ear. They're going to be an actual person 
who is going to listen to your concerns, take them into account uh, and find a way to get justice uh, and, and fix whatever's going on. And, you know, having that structure, having that system in place, uh, I think will really help, you know, student workers also feel like they're part of a larger thing and part of something that's really important, not just for themselves, but, you know, honestly for the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'll echo that. I think that's our, our biggest task um, is not necessarily, I mean, I think we're going to try to use the contract negotiations as a, a way to um, kickstart this um, and just a, it's something to organize around. Um, but I think, yeah, establishing that structure of, uh, of stewardship, of, of really just solidarity, where, where when an individual has a problem, they, one, know who to turn to, and two, uh, there's a structure that exists that will do something about it um, when, when they do bring it up. Um, so, uh, and, and it really, like, whether that grievance procedure is, is enshrined in the contract or not, I think making sure that, that everybody knows and that we've got a system that, um, that educates people on, on how collective action works, how to take collective action, um, and, uh, yeah, so how to, how to respond when something goes wrong and when you've got a demand, um, I think, and this gets into the longer term goal a little bit, is just building that up so that it works well enough one that that student workers can see it working and then two uh that new people can come in and reimagine um what what we can apply that to because collective action is a tool um that extends far beyond uh the the like a, a workplace on campus you know and i think that's that's uh really how we how we get where we want to be um whether that's for uh for like individual uh, justice for individual workers, workplace justice as a whole, or restructuring the entire economy, um, restructuring the way our, our, our country works and our world works. I think that's that um, has to happen with collective action. So um, yeah, I think establishing that and then making it work well enough that people can come in and, and see, see that, that the tool really works and, and go and um, use it other places and figure out how to use it better at, at Grinnell. I think that's, that's my, my number one goal. So doing that yeah, through our through our bargaining process, we'll 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 see how how well that goes. Um, I think the other the other part is, um, and this uh, kind of ties back to the the high turnover thing that we've been talking about. Um, we have very high turnover as a union. You know, I have been the the president for uh, one semester, and I'm not going to be the president in the fall. So uh, we and I I I didn't know what a union was uh, two and a half years ago, um, and so. Uh, I think the, our other big priority is, is getting new workers uh, like trained, getting them the, the skills to organize their coworkers, and then um, and then handing off the leadership to those to those people. So we're we're I think we're doing well when it when it comes to that. We've we've got a lot of a lot of interest and um, a lot of new people who are getting involved. So um, so yeah, gonna gonna try to do our best to um, set them up with the tools to. To, to handle things. I think Malcolm is, is a great example of, of somebody who's ready, ready to take over. Um, right, Malcolm, you're gonna, you're gonna kick us out um, and, and take power. So yeah. Well, y'all, we have gotten like, this has been, I, I never want this conversation to end and I didn't think I was gonna say that because usually I go to bed at 8.30 p.m. Eastern and it is now 10 o'clock. Um, our light final round, I lied. I want to ask you another question and I'm going to combine it with the last question. So this is a lightning round of two like 
recommendation slash advice. The first, um, the first question is, what's your best piece of advice um, for undergraduate organizers trying to get something going, especially if they're maybe feeling like they're starting at square one? What do they need to hold on to? And what are what's like what's something just a piece of wisdom that you could offer them? And two, what are you watching, listening to, reading, get consuming that you're like, yes, this is like the pick of the summer and somebody should go like explore it. Um, and that may or may not have anything to do with what we have talked about. All right. Either uh, one of you want to go first? I can go first. Great. Malcolm. I would say advice to people aspiring to organize in undergraduate unions is just to get out there and start. You know, if you have the idea and you're committed to the idea, just start the very next day, right? You know, it starts on, on a very, very small scale. Uh, talk to one worker, you get a meeting going and it's just you and one worker. If it's going to start at two people, it's got to start somewhere. So just really just starting that process, getting the word out, making your presence known, making it known uh, that, you know, you think that things should change and, and, and trying to convince people if that's what's necessary, that, that should be it. And I think that people will be surprised uh, how fast that can grow, especially in the time that we're in right now, where I think that this is something that's on uh, a lot of people's minds. So yeah, biggest advice is, is just go for it uh, and talk to people. And what have I been, I've been reading, trying to read a little bit more. I just read, um, this is not a new book in any sense, but I just read Malcolm X's autobiography, which was fantastic. Uh, and now I'm reading the book, Blood Brothers, uh, about Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali by Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith. And I recommend both of those if people haven't read them. Uh, but yeah, that's what I got. Yeah, um, my one piece of advice, um, it's hard to boil, boil it down to one. I think the part of what Malcolm said, just the one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, that's the thing. Whenever we talk to new organizers, we just kind of hammer them over the head with one-on-one -on -one conversations. Just do one-on-one -on -one conversations, get other people to do one-on-one -on -one conversations, write down what you say, um, and then you can kind of map out map out who works where and, and where to go. Um, I think that's a good thing that I've learned. The biggest one I think is just don't like, don't let like the conventional wisdom or the uh, or the structures in place or what other people say that you shouldn't shouldn't be doing or the law for that matter. Don't let that get in your way. Um, just go start um, and then rethink how like every step of the way. Try to rethink what you're doing and and uh, and think about like is this getting us closer to our goal. Um, and uh, and just go from there. Um, I think, yeah, what Malcolm said of just kind of starting, um, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Um, and and go start, go get a couple people that that you know will be solid and will will uh, will do it with you. And then um, and then it'll it'll grow or it won't grow and it'll just be you for a little while, but um, or for a long while. Um, but yeah, just go out there, go out there and do it. Um, I think it, yeah. It's, it's all about getting that first step and then and then just making it a, a habit. I think. Um, and then what I'm reading, I'm reading, let's see. Um, I just started um, Love and Struggle, uh, My Life in SDS and the Weather Underground by David Gilbert, um, which is, uh, it's very good. I would highly recommend it. Um, yeah, he's, it was a, this is, it was written by David Gilbert is uh, actually Chesa Boudin's father, the 
a district attorney who was just recalled from um, from San Francisco, um, who was in SDS in the Weather Underground, was convicted for um, his involvement in a in a uh, a murder as part of the what the Weather Weather Underground was doing, um, and served I think it was like forty seven years in prison um, for a murder that he did not did not commit, um, and just recently got out in like twenty nineteen I think. Um, so he wrote wrote this book while in while in prison, and it's it's very. Very good, very interesting. Um, has a lot of a lot of history that you don't learn about um, the kind of the the, the history of anti-oppressive movements um, in the United States. Um, yeah, so I highly recommend that. I'm also reading um, Cloud Cuckoo Land, uh, which is a it's good. It's it's a little hard to follow sometimes because there's a lot of different things going on. But um, I can't remember the author's name. He also wrote All the Light We Cannot See. So that's that's my my fiction fiction recommendation if you're trying to trying to get out of, get out of here and go think about something else. <laughs> Anthony Dorr. I'm also reading that book right now. Someone gave it to me. I'm, I'm moving through it slowly, but it's happening. Tina, what are your advice? Do you want to give advice slash Rex? Well, as Malcolm and, and Kier were talking, I thought of the Alice, titled the Alice Walker book. I think it's, um, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And uh, advice to to students, because we've got a living wage movement on our campus that's reinvigorating post-pandemic, uh, is a lot of the like the advice that that you gave um, already um, is to um, be persistent and face the fear, um, because they're gonna the administration is gonna try to undermine you at every um, every turn, and also build coalitions. Uh, as many as possible, both inside and outside the institution. Um, and what am I reading? I'm reading um, uh, everything right now for two articles I have to do this summer. Uh, a lot of film theory because I'm writing on this German film called um, Das Neue Evangelium, which is the new gospel. It's a, it's a new Jesus film, filmed in the same town as um, uh, Pasolini and Mel Gibson filmed their their Jesus films and um, using local actors who happen to be African asylum seekers uh, working on a mafia run farm. So it's like all over the map. Uh, really interesting film about organizing collective action against the mafia in Italy by these uh, African asylum seekers who were on boats where people died. And it's just, it's, a, it's just a an, an very interesting film. So that's what, that's what I'm up to. So Lucia, what are you consuming, watching, reading? All of you gave like such wholesome, um, you know, being a good student and Tina just broke our rule of doing uh, for fun. Um, <laughs> I guess you're allowed to answer. I mean, I'm glad you're allowed, but maybe the movie is fun. I don't know. Um, anyway, I, you know, I'm going to be honest. Um, I was supposed to be doing copy edits on my book this week, but a deer charged into my car and my car and I, so i have spent the week consuming information from insurance companies rental car companies car salespeople, credit rating agencies um and uh staring at a wall 
afterwards or watching the WNBA, which listeners of our podcast will know that I do every time that, you know, free Brittany Griner, um, go Chicago. Uh, yeah, that's my, oh, 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 and my favorite new band is Ethel Kane, um, which is a really cool sort of like indie rock band that I have, that the algorithm sent me, and they're great. Anyway, y'all are also great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we're hoping that this is the first of a series of, um, a stream of uh, a mighty stream of student activists um, making change on their campuses and uh, in our world. So thank you, Kier and Malcolm. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Keir Hitchens and Malcolm Galpern-Levin of the Union of Grinnell Student Dining Workers from Grinnell College. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our music is done by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins for our intro and theme music. And our outro music this time is by Paul Myrie. Beautiful Day, available on Bandcamp.com. Well, we've taken the leap. After over five years of growing the Radical Pedagogy podcast, as a shoestring volunteer and almost entirely self-funded operation. We're excited to open up opportunities for our listeners to directly support our programming and operation cost. Your donations will enable us to cover the fees for our new and improved hosting platform and webpage. So far, we have asked our amazing guests to join us as volunteers, and we're extremely grateful that they have said yes but we want to get to a place where we can offer them honoraria. We hope and intend to add an exclusive podcast feed for guests, where co-hosts Tina and Lucia answer questions for listeners and have dialogues about what we are learning as we go about the work of teaching and learning and podcasting. No donation amount is too small. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners for your engagement, support, and encouragement as we continue to grow. Thank you for listening.